Hey, it's Agrita Dandrao, and you're listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast, which calls for revolutionary healing of self and community that can allow us to outgrow cultures of scarcity and hyper-individualism and move to more caring and regenerative ways of living and working in community. Today we have a very special episode where I will be sharing with you all the beautiful research I got to conduct over the summer on the gift in community-based citizen science, which formed part of my master's degree in environmental policy. This is also why the podcast took a month's break to allow me that space to rest and rejuvenate. And I'm very excited to be back here with all of you so that we can continue on the beautiful conversations we have in this space. One of my research questions was actually asking if volunteers feel empowered as knowledge producers because I was looking at citizen science initiatives. So knowledge was kind of like the key thing that I was looking into. And the answer to that question would be, it's not that volunteers feel particularly empowered by labels or roles like knowledge producer or gift giver, etc. They feel empowered actually from being able to contribute and fulfill their responsibilities as stewards by taking part in these projects that give them that freedom to carry out their responsibility. So they have that ownership over their actions. I hope you all are very excited to tune in to Mindful of Everything after the break and that the research I got to conduct speaks to you emotionally and spiritually, just as it has done for me. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Mindful of Everything. I really do hope that all of you have had a wonderful summer and that it was joyful, it was full of rest. As I mentioned in the intro, I decided I needed a month off after the masters, not particularly because I was drained out, but it was just, I think, a time for me to get that headspace to think about the next steps for this space. So now that we are back, I am very excited, especially because today I'm going to be talking about the research that I got to do as part of my master's study in environmental and social policy. But again, before we dive into the episode, as we always do together, we're going to do the breathing exercise practice. I think the breathing exercise is a wonderful way that can help us ease into that space together. To begin this, I would just like if you could close your eyes and get ready to center your attention onto your body and yourself. Again, taking deep breaths in all the pauses that we take in the exercise. And just slowly observe the environment around you being really present in the moment and the space that is holding you. And now to really just relax ourselves in the moment, let's start off with the shoulders. So just gradually lift the shoulders up and push them back, gently feeling that stretch. And then allow them to gradually drop into a comfortable position. And again, feeling that movement. I'm going to do a similar thing to the back. So just gradually, gently sit up straight so your back is as stretched out as possible. And then just gradually relax going to somewhere between right and slouched, not too slouched, which is something that's comfortable for you. Now we're going to go to the hands, again, whatever position they are in, relax the hands, relax the fingers, if they're cupped together, then leave them in that position, but just allow the hands, the arms to relax, and the fingers. And you should start to feel the body just actually relaxing in its own way. But I think for me, what's important is that when you focus on each part of the body as we are right now, 
It allows you to notice the difference between a tensed position and that that is relaxed. And it's relaxed because you are aware of that. You're aware that it has transitioned from that stressed, intense position that we usually are in to something that's more relaxed. And you can then slowly start feeling the body follow that too. And so now for the last part is just your legs. So you could be in a crossed leg position right now. You could be sitting on a chair as I am right now. Whatever position, you can allow your legs to relax. Allow the feet to relax. The beauty of mindfulness is to be aware. It's not really to float off into something completely different from what is the present, but it's really just to ground ourselves in the present, to be aware of what's around us and what's within. And hopefully now you feel that your body is a bit more relaxed than what it was at the beginning of the exercise. Again, remembering to take those deep breaths. And when you're ready in your own time, we're going to be taking five deep breaths together. Again, we have been doing that throughout the exercise, but now it's becoming a bit more aware of the breathing and allowing your breaths to really reach that relaxed pace so something that's not too fast. Okay, we're going to start now. So take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. Take a deep breath in. And a deep breath out. Last one. Deep breath in. Deep breath out. And when it feels right for you, just gently open your eyes. Thank you so much for taking part in that with me. And now we're going to get into the episode. But before we begin on exploring the findings of my study, I just want to let you all know that this episode uh, will be completely anonymized. So I did conduct field research. So I conducted interviews and also uh, participant observation and that required me to talk to different people. And so in the thesis, I did anonymize them, but I didn't anonymize the group's name, uh, the volunteer group's name. I didn't uh, anonymize their location because that really added to the context of the, the study and the work. But in terms of like the episode today, I haven't gotten permission from the participants to discuss the study on the podcast. And although I do believe that they will be completely happy with me doing so, they do want to, of course, advertise their work so that more volunteers join. But just for their, uh, just for confidential purposes, I'm not going to be disclosing the group name and the location and anything like that. So I just wanted to make you all aware of that. For the same reason, I also won't be posting the dissertation on my website, but I do hope to summarize the study results as well as possible in the hour or so that we have together in the episode and really just bring out a part of grassroots level work, which 
I think really needs to be better researched for environmental decision and policy making. But since the findings are very aligned to the values of this space, I just thought, you know, it's so important that I discuss it. And I spent months conducting the research and writing the dissertation and I'm very proud of it. I've got it printed out. Um, so I'm very, very proud of it. And of course, this space is all about celebrating your achievements and celebrating the wonderful things you get to experience in life, spiritually, emotionally, academically, and all different levels. And the values that I'm talking about here are mainly reciprocity, mutual care, and moral responsibility of stewardship everything that we discuss on the podcast and we center in our conversations. So I think it just makes so much sense that I discuss it today. So the title of the thesis is quite long and I'll just say it to you right now because it basically summarizes everything that I found whilst doing the research. So the title is The Gift in Citizen Science, Centering Reciprocity, Relationality and Care in Community-Based Biodiversity Monitoring. So as I mentioned, it is a bit long, but it really encompasses everything that the dissertation covers. Essentially, I was exploring the model of community or volunteer-led citizen science as a way to bring communities, especially those who are sort of at the peripheries, to the centre of decision-making for their local environment, for their places. And I was doing this by using the framework of the gift economy, which I later developed in the dissertation as a care-informed gift economy. So just to give some background into how I even chose a gift economy to be the topic of my research, I actually was very inspired by Robin Wall Kimmerer's conceptualization of the gift economy and the currency of reciprocity in gifting communities when I was reading her book, Braiding Sweetgrass. So one of the coursework um, as part of the modules for the masters that I was doing required for me to complete a book review. So it could be something on environmental knowledges, policy, etc. And the first book that kind of came to me was Braiding Sweetgrass. I had read a bit of it, but I thought, you know, through this coursework I can at least read a bit more and write about a book that I really feel passionate about and that is exactly it that's what I you know thought to do I didn't think about choosing the gift economy for my thesis when I started the master's or even when I was doing the coursework but I really did want to develop it in some way and so when it came around actually thinking about what you want to do for the dissertation I was like well why not do the gift economy which is something I feel so passionate about it was quite brushed in terms of actually thinking in what way I can put the gift economy into, you know, environmental policy. It was, it was quite difficult to envision that. So I was actually taking a disaster management module and being in that module and being in one of the lectures, I just randomly thought about my own experience of the gift economy which is within the migration context. So it's quite different to environmental policy, but that's the first thing I thought about. But of course, I later realized that I should actually change it because I want the thesis to be more relevant in environmental policy. So just to give a bit of insight into my own personal experiences of the gift economy, I migrated here with my family at the age of five, five and a half, Back in 2005, from India, from New Delhi, all the way to London. And we, yeah, we migrated here to settle here. And it's, it's been like 18 years now. And one of the key ways that we got to sort of assimilate into the British culture and actually find our place around London and explore was by joining a migrant, refugee, and asylum seeker community group, which I would say up until now, in the UK, like I haven't experienced that level of community and care. And it was just, it was a beautiful community to be a part of. It was so important because through them, we got to explore so many different areas of London, but also in terms of like finding our sense of identity and sense of place, particularly as migrants, you know, who want to settle here. So it, you go through so many uh, different things as a migrant. And if you have that community that can really help you find that sense of identity it just changes everything 
And within that community group, there were so many different gift exchanges going on. First of all, all the places that we're exploring in London, we didn't have to pay for because the community group was getting funding from uh, the council, as well as the sort of knowledge exchanges, you know, people from across the world are coming together and they have this migration uh, background but they're also carrying forward all of these knowledges. So there would be like community kitchens where uh, mothers in particular would come together and share their recipes. And, you know, it was it was a proper community. Um, it was a place of celebration. And we had such beautiful memories from that. So that's that was my first experience of the gift economy. I don't think I have experienced such a whole such a beautifully functioning gift economy in that way. So that was the first thing that came into my mind. But then I was like, well, how can I bring that into environmental policy? So then I decided to search around and I finally came across a 2020 paper by Per Hetland, which is the only academic paper to talk about intellectual gift circulation in citizen science. So citizen science is not something I considered. I didn't even do the module in the Masters for Citizen Science. But I was like, okay, there's this paper and they talk about the gift economy in citizen science. Why don't I do something similar? So this paper by Per Hetland, it is talking about intellectual gift circulation, but specifically where institutions are leading citizen science initiatives so that they can disseminate knowledge to wider society. For me, I've always been more interested in bottom-up and place-based initiatives, as I'm sure you all are aware of, you know, when you tune in into this space, it is all about community and bottom-up processes. So I decided to take this reciprocal gift model into the context of environmental volunteering. For me, it made complete sense to bring volunteering and the gift together. So for me, it really appears to have a strong relationship already. So I thought to go down this route, which turned out to be so interesting and inspiring. And I really hope this area of research can really be developed more because it has so much potential, particularly in bringing forward those people who have historically been overlooked when when it comes to decision making. But these people are the ones who have the most experience with the land that they have been living on, their families, generations have been living on. So it makes so much sense to bring them into decision making. And through the gift economy, I was able to see the importance of that. So to start off in exploring the findings with you all, I think it is first important that we go through the academic lineage of the gift, as the thesis is, of course, an academic piece. But just to reiterate and to highlight, and it's something that I mentioned in the thesis, that the gift is not a new concept. It is an age-old practice that we as humans have used to evolve, to grow and evolve as civilizations. But the gift in itself is also ritual. It's also ceremony for many indigenous communities and cultures. And it's, it's what uh, Kimura describes in Braiding Sweetgrass. But it is also an integral part of non-Western cultures too, in terms of the specific type of gift economy I will be talking about today, particularly in the way in which these cultures are conceptualizing reciprocity. Reciprocity here, again, as I mentioned, that the thesis was building on the conceptualization of reciprocity by Kimra as being the currency of the gift economy. It's what sustains the gift economy. Although volunteering and gift economy for me, it made sense, but when actually researching for the literature that could support my belief and understanding of volunteering and the gift, specifically citizen science, it actually turned out to be quite a challenge conceptually because the relationship between volunteering and reciprocity has not been widely researched. And again, as I mentioned, reciprocity is a currency of this economy, it's the moral principle of of the gift economy. But conceptually, volunteering and reciprocity are quite different. You know, reciprocity is more about mutuality between giving and receiving, and volunteering is mostly understood as a selfless engagement for the benefit of society. So in this way, volunteering is essentially seen as altruistic and is driven by altruistic or intrinsic motivations, whilst reciprocity is sort of seen as a more exchange-based interaction. 
which then makes sense if you are thinking about an economic framing like the gift economy, when in fact the gift economy is way more than just an economic framing. Again, you can start to see how myopic this understanding of reciprocity is and how even volunteering becomes limited, like our understanding of volunteering becomes limited, as well as the complexities around why people give and volunteer. I think in literature I can become very categorical and very separate, but we do need to understand that our motivations will never ever be pure. It can never be purely altruistic uh, in whatever we do, but particularly in volunteering. And that was also confirmed by the findings too. We as humans, we tend to work in more impurely altruistic ways. I'm sure volunteers, you know, who are listening right now to the episode, if you have volunteered before, you are volunteering now, or you know people who volunteer, they will agree that volunteering can be strategic, it can be consciously organised, it can be quite focused on your personal interests and needs, and it should be to an extent. On the other hand, reciprocity, which again has been popularised as this exchange model, it can also be altruistic, and it's something that seems very contradictory, but, you know, feeling obliged, for example, to help others to continue on a cycle of giving and receiving, not on the basis of expecting something in return, but on past positive experiences that if you receive help, then you'd want other people to receive help. So that is reciprocity, but that is also altruistic because you're caring about others and you're helping because you hope that that cycle continues on. So... As you can see already, volunteering is very complex. Reciprocity is very complex. The gift will be very complex. So there are many different ways that you can conceptualize reciprocity or reciprocal relationships. And a dominant way to do that is the gift economy. The gift economy has now been developed by feminist and decolonial schools of thought as a radical alternative to profit-centric capitalism. Again, saying, you know, currency is reciprocity here, something that is not so tangible, but has tangible outcomes. But the gift economy, uh, how it has been sort of developed in academia, does not have feminist roots. It was actually formally introduced by Marcel Mauss in 1924, who used his observations of gift exchanges in archaic Polynesian and Melanesian societies to basically come to this conclusion that a pure gift or a free gift does not exist. He claimed that every gift that is given and received is tied to three key obligations, to give, to receive and to repay or to give back a worthy return. And since then, the theories of the gift have extended out of anthropology to other disciplines But again, they are going under scrutiny for a lot of problems with how the gift has been theorised, particularly how it has been oversimplified. The problem is that Mao's and his contemporaries, the way they have conceptualised the gift, it is deeply embedded in the gendered sort of prejudices of the time. Genevieve Vaughan has played a pivotal role in feminizing the gift and bringing it out of the market exchange model. And she's done that through applying a logic of care as opposed to a logic of exchange, which she argues that we all have inherited this logic of care and logic of nurturing as children through mothering practices. Something that Per Hertland 2020 emphasizes too that gift giving and receiving is way more than just exchanging tangible and intangible resources. Again, that just really reduces it to another form of market exchange, another alternative to capitalism, whilst also preserving those capitalist values. The gift is really an intimate act of listening and tending to the needs of others, which then engenders these meaningful relationships and community that we are working to sustain. And it's these values of caregiving, of nurturing and reciprocity that are so central to so many indigenous community networks and gift epistemes. And it's something that Kimura refers to in her book as well. Communities who are still engaging in these giving of ceremonious gifts, which can be physical, but can it can include and does include love, care, respect, 
when we do that, when you're engaging in that ceremony, we are fortifying the system of interdependency and sustaining what Lange 2010 calls an economy of circulation. So it's really thinking about circulating these values in community and sustaining that ecosystem, which is why I decided to build the thesis on Kimura's conception of reciprocity as something that isn't market-informed, but rather an obligation to fulfill our human responsibilities of stewardship. But you cannot have stewardship without care. Stewardship is all about care um, and caregiving. And so when I presented my thesis idea to other supervisors and students as part of the grade for my dissertation, I soon realized that an essential part of framing environmental volunteering and stewardship as an ecosystem of gift giving was missing from my initial framework, and that was care. So care ethics, they have been used substantially in environmental volunteering and community-based environmental work, but mostly care ethics have been used in the justice and voluntary care sectors. The gift economy has not as much been developed in environmental volunteering and environmental justice. So I ended up getting a lot of inspiration from care ethics literature for this thesis, particularly as the logic of care is all about mutual care, specifically for those others who have culturally been valued as less than human. And that is where the fields of environmental ethics and justice as a whole come into it. It's all about taking a more empathetic and relational approach to moral issues rather than taking sort of an impartial one. So specifically for environmental ethics and justice, care ethics advocates for the agency and rights of the more than human. It argues that everyone, since everyone is deeply embedded and connected to one another, we all have the right to fulfill responsibilities of caring for one another and nurturing relationships so that everyone is playing a role in sustaining the web of life. So I decided that the best way to conduct the study would actually be to give like a real life example of how the gift economy in community basis and science actually plays out. So I started looking out for a group that I could actually work with and hopefully produce this case study example of the gift economy in environmental volunteering, particularly looking at how reciprocal relationships are built and nurtured in whatever group I was going to work with through gifting and caregiving, not just for the success of the project, but also how is it empowering locals to take care of their local environment, which for me is a key part of bottom-up and place-based policymaking and decision-making. I am just so grateful for the group I eventually ended up working with for the study. They were always so warm, they were so welcoming. You know, I first joined their Facebook group to actually make the methodology more authentic um, and to really evoke genuine interest for their work. Being a researcher in social sciences, you know, in geography, I was just very aware of my positionality as an outsider of a volunteer group. You know, I'm coming in with this research agenda, so I really wanted to make sure that the methodology was as authentic as possible and that I wasn't just doing this for my own benefit. This is something that I would want, you know, be researched further. I also just wanted to, in a way, honour the work of the volunteers who are doing amazing, amazing things just to take care of their local environment. So that's exactly why I joined their Facebook group first, amazing community on there, sort of seeing the um, gift exchanges, knowledge exchanges that were going on online. And that's when I decided to formally reach out after being part of their group for like a week or two. Once I got the permission of coordinators to do the study, it was then choosing a citizen science project to present as a case study. They have a wide range of projects up and running, but they told me that, you know, the one project that is gaining popularity currently is the Hedgehogs project. So the hedgehog population is actually declining um, because these wildlife corridors are not open and uh, these spaces are not connected. So that's exactly why they decided to do the project, uh, particularly increasing connectivity between urban and green spaces. Hedgehogs are great, of course, you don't get to interact with them. But I was like, yeah, why not? Let's do the research with the volunteers from the hedgehog group. 
So I decided to take a multi-method approach for the study. So I done uh, immersive participant observation first to get a detailed picture of the sort of complex and intimate relationships being built in the group and then doing semi-structured interviews with them. So there were two participant observation days that I took part in. One was a habitat creation day. I got to meet wonderful volunteers. And the second was a highway creation day. So seeing how someone's garden was being opened up to the spaces around them. Again, I was very aware of my positionality as a researcher. So I made sure to sort of take on this role as a volunteer and actually really just immerse myself into the experience rather than just constantly thinking about, you know, making notes and things like that. I was making mental notes, of course. Um, I didn't want people to become sort of conscious about what they were doing. And uh, that's exactly how it worked out. People didn't even realize I was, you know, I was here for my research. They thought I was just a volunteer. And in that way, I got to talk to them about their experiences and uh, their reasons to volunteer. So for both of these days, it actually gave me very rich insight into how the situated biographies of volunteers, you know, whether they were active or passive, they are very intimately tied to their personal practices and beliefs and commitments of uh, stewardship. And it's these uh, stories of theirs and their emotions and values that really act like a glue for the network. If they weren't there, they wouldn't feel motivated to participate. For the interviews, I ended up conducting about 10 interviews with project leads, coordinators, and also volunteers, part of the Hedgehog project. The study could only be small. It was just for a few months. I only had a few months to actually do uh, the study and then write about it. But I think it provided a great insight into the caregiving ecosystem of volunteering and just how interconnected it is to other systems of care. So that's the methodology and the sort of logic applied to the research. Now it's for the actual findings analysis. So there were three key themes that strongly emerged from the data. First was the ecosystem of caregiving. The second was moral responsibility and collective agency. And the third was reciprocity in volunteering. All three of these themes greatly overlapped, as you can imagine. But using the framing of the gift economy, I found that when these themes intersected, they revealed deeper emotional and social complexities around environmental caregiving and volunteering, which I genuinely think would have been harder to find if I'd just gone into, you know, for example, interviews asking people about their emotions and motivations as volunteers. So I think by framing volunteering as the gift, volunteers were really able to show to themselves and to me as well how vital informal relationships and partnerships are in regulating ecosystem health and functionality. And that finding in particular was, it really strongly supports the argument to decentralize decision-making and to allow communities to take more control in decision-making processes for their local environments. So starting off with the first theme, which was the ecosystem of caregiving and gift receiving. When I was talking to the volunteers, particularly in the interviews, a lot of the volunteers were actually quite hesitant in accepting that they even can play a role of giving a gift when they volunteer. They could easily say what gifts they have received, particularly intangible ones, like friendships and experiences in nature and knowledge and just a feel of actually doing something good. And the only things that they could perhaps see as giving a gift is things like their skills and their time and their effort. But even then, a lot of them were actually really hesitant to say that they could actually gift in this case. Project leads, however, were way more comfortable in identifying the gifts that volunteers give, and they were very grateful for them. So first of all, the DIY skills, but also ecological knowledge, but they also were able to mention physical gifts. So some volunteers were able to give wildlife paintings and art. Volunteers also give wet cat food, for example, for hedgehogs. At the same time, Project Leeds mentioned that there were many different ways that they reciprocated the efforts of volunteers or sort of gifted back to volunteers. And one of the key things that sort of stood out to me, which I thought was very sweet, was actually providing refreshments and a warm place after a task was completed, particularly in winter months. So one of the habitat creation days uh, that took place, 
at the end of it, because it was in winter, everyone came together and there was tea and then there was biscuits and cake and everyone could come together and sort of feel proud about what they had done and laugh. And Project Lee said that it was, um, it was lovely to see that, but that's also a way that they care about volunteers and show them that, you know, we're very grateful for the work that you have done. So yes, this is a way to retain volunteers, but at the same time is to care for that system, that ecosystem that is being built and expanded and maintained by all these volunteers coming together to, you know, work for the more than human nature. So already you can start seeing that the gift is way bigger than just a simple exchange of sort of individual human and physical assets. It's about the personal and it's about the relational when you are giving and receiving. So I could see that the group were able to establish and nurture an open system of reciprocity and care. So reciprocity for them is not something rigid, you know, it's not something that requires so much commitment. Reciprocity for the project leads is all about creating this system that allows for volunteers to come and go as they please, depending on, you know, their personal commitments and life commitments, but just coming and enjoying themselves taking part in something that will hopefully end up being reciprocated by more than human nature, particularly hedgehogs, that, you know, their efforts will be reciprocated by the hedgehogs and that hopefully the population will increase. But just sort of focusing on the present and really enjoying enjoying themselves and engaging in community. It was amazing to see how they see reciprocity in such an open and flexible way. You know, no one's being obliged to um, commit. There's no sort of formal membership, no paid membership. So no one's really obliged to take part just because they're paid for something, you know, that they have to sort of fulfill. It is just about you coming when you feel you're ready just to work with other people to take care of the land and of nature. I also noticed that there weren't any strong relationship dynamics, for example, between project leads and volunteers, particularly as project leads themselves are volunteers, so they're not being paid for this work. So essentially everyone there is a volunteer, it's just that certain people have taken on certain roles and commitments to lead these tasks. But again, responsibilities on the day of tasks, for example, the Habitat Creation Day, they are always sort of distributed amongst volunteers. You know, there will be a project lead giving a brief, but then in the end, everyone is helping each other and it's very open, very flexible. You can leave whenever if you really need to, you know, and I think seeing commitment and responsibility in that way allows for that system to be open, allows for reciprocity to be open and fluid, which was amazing to see on the ground. But I think it also is a case of being in a place that is so pro-environmental. So that borough that the group is based in is very pro-environmental. Everyone is very conscious of their impact on the environment. And so they have that sort of strong volunteer base that allows them to be open and flexible. But they also already have these very established and built infrastructures that they have been able to sort of embed their infrastructures into these existing infrastructures and communal spaces. So they have a lot of support already. And so that also means they have so many different organizations and partnerships that can support and fortify that environmental volunteer network even more. So the council is very eager to collaborate with them for their own agendas, of course, but they are there. They have informal partnerships. They have partnerships with different charities that are environmental and not environmental. So the community of environmental caregivers is very big in that area. And so that is exactly why they've been able to integrate very well into the ecology. And people are so eager to take part So delving a bit deeper into this sub-theme of interconnectivity, which of course extends out to the different themes in the thesis, I decided to ask if project leads could label any of the partnerships, for example, that they had with different groups and organisations as gifting relationships. And they mentioned that only the sort of informal and more intimate and personal relationships and partnerships they could see as gifting relationships. So for example, relationships with the council seemed a bit more sort of obligatory and very formal and a bit transactional. You know, it had to do with ulterior motive. Informal partnerships were way more about building relationships out of mutual concern and care so that everyone in the network is sustained for and cared for. So essentially everyone benefits. 
And by informal, I mean, you know, they, these are official partnerships, but it's just that the relationships are built um, much between these groups are much more personal and mutually beneficial. Just to give you an example, I ended up interviewing a manager of an allotment that is in official partnership with that volunteer group. And so that partnership is official, but the relationships I got to see that were happening just in that allotment, they were way more personal and way more intimate than, you know, the sort of transactional relationships that will happen in more formal partnerships. You know, when I reached that allotment, I was doing the interview in the allotment. My relationship, for example, with the manager started by me receiving the gift of honey that was actually cultivated by the bees in the allotment. And, you know, when I was going on on the tour for the allotment, I actually got to see the hives of the bees, which was just so special. So the gift I received um, was literally from that place. And I got to see where it was it was produced from, which was really lovely. And as I was going around, but also talking to the uh, manager in the interview, I realized just how integrated the allotment itself is to the surrounding urban ecology, but also how each plot that is owned by different people, how integrated those were with each other as well. It was really open for visitors to just look around. Plot owners themselves who were present at that day were like, yeah, come in, look around, just explore by yourself, which was really lovely to see. I actually hadn't been to such a large allotment before. So it was my first time really looking around and seeing how people's cultural practices and their stories, their lived experiences were really just shaping all these different plots. And those were mixing with other people's stories and cultures and stewardship practices. So it was very inspiring to see how just this one allotment held so much diversity and so much beauty. And in this way, the allotment itself was this mosaic of culture and life stories and care infrastructures for more than human beings. For example, they had feeding stations out for hedgehogs. They had ponds with ladders in them. So if any hedgehogs fell in, they could come out. They had feeding and drinking dishes for not just hedgehogs, but other species like foxes. They had bird and bat boxes. So it was really just a beautiful mosaic of all these stories and care uh, infrastructures and culture. It was very lovely to experience. But it also formed a very strong example of how grassroots-led care infrastructures can provide those spaces for so many communities, human and more than human, to come together and sustain the land in their own ways. But again, spaces like that, they are able to function because of that very strong culture of stewardship that is intrinsic to that place, that borough. But at the same time, they are putting in a lot of work and making sure that, you know, the legacy of uh, environmental volunteers continues on so that these areas and these species are protected. But again, as I mentioned before, the motivation to volunteer is really dependent and is very situated actually in the individual and collective life stories of volunteers. And that's where their values and their commitments come from. So the emotional dimensions of volunteering or what we call emotional geographies of volunteering show us just how embodied and intimate and emotional the relationship that people have with place and how that relationship encourages them to take part in taking care of their places and uh, the nature around them. You know, most interviewees actually mentioned that environmental volunteering came quite naturally to them because they are part of this wonderful community of wildlife lovers who want to use their free time over the weekend, on holidays, etc. to take part in these projects. They want to care for the land that they are on. But at the same time, they also want to have this sense of belonging and knowing in this community that is so passionate about taking care of the environment. And that if they feel that they are in that community and they are well integrated in that community, that really does urge them to participate and commit. And I got to experience that passion when doing the habitat creation on the Habitat Creation Day where I saw a lot of volunteers, especially the regular volunteers, abandoning the gardening gloves that they were using so that they could work with the land better. So we were creating these um, high vernacular and yeah, they just felt that they could work with the logs and the soil better 
if they just use their bare hands. And it was lovely to see that. And when I was talking to different volunteers, I could see that any sort of fear they may have had with interacting with the land or with different species was overcome by their previous experiences of working with the land and being in nature and doing projects like this. You know, people weren't afraid, for example, to help frogs get back into water areas. So we were using logs and a lot of the wheelbarrows ended up getting frogs inside them. So they weren't scared about dealing with the frogs, for example. They weren't even scared about moving sort of stinging nettles away with their bare hands. You know, they were engaging all of their senses in this multi-sensory landscape. And that's exactly what brings them back. It's this you know, fully immersive embodied experience that they get to have each time they participate with the group that really just does bring them back to the group. So by framing their volunteer work as a gift, so much insight was able to sort of emerge, you know, from talking to them. And it was really, really incredible to see that But it also soon became clear that what I initially understood as the gift in community-based citizen science, which I do admit was a bit more like the market economy model. You know, I was actually thinking about the individual gifts that were being given as well as the relationships that were facilitating the gift giving. But actually the gift for them in this way was actually quite different to what I initially understood it to be. Of course, individual gifts are very important. Uh, in themselves and they do help sustain the gifting ecosystem. But volunteers actually mentioned that engaging in environmental volunteering is ultimately really just about living up to the moral responsibility of being a caring and proactive citizen, which hopefully will become a gift to society. Volunteers feel obliged to give you know back to community and back to nature because they feel that they need to live up to that moral responsibility as a steward as a caring citizen of the land that they occupy and again it was wonderful to see how the values of responsibility and care that are in care ethics and the gift economy is exactly what the volunteers you know deeply feel about which is amazing to see that you know using the gift economy really worked out in this case A few volunteers also mentioned that seeing volunteering as a commitment made them feel more empowered to take responsibility in caring for the environment. No matter what little expertise they have, it is really just about taking that responsibility, taking that control of caring for the environment. So essentially, it's all about enabling their capacities as agentic beings who have as much of a right to steward the land and take care of the land than other sort of experienced environmentalists do, uh, which I think is so powerful. The Hedgehog project is new and it's small scale, so the impact of volunteer actions cannot exactly be measured as of yet. Volunteers are completely aware of that, yet they just want to carry out their responsibility of doing as much as they could, no matter how small the opportunity is. So in this way, the doing of volunteering is just as important as volunteer motivations and commitments. So as long as volunteers can actually actively engage in fulfilling their responsibilities, it really does keep their hopes up that their efforts will be appreciated by the hedgehogs and by nature. And that's exactly what I got to see in the participant observation days. And so that's what I refer to as proactive caring, you know, that the practical element of active volunteering is allowing volunteers to feel that, yes, I have achieved something and I have proactively cared for the environment. I have done something for the hedgehogs and uh, for other species as well. And it links to what Lions at Our 2017 says about the ethic of care. The ethic of care is something that has to be practiced. It's a way of living that has to be practiced. So you have to be proactively caring to be fulfilling any responsibilities of caregiving. And that's exactly what the volunteers were talking about. They mentioned that by engaging in local and accessible projects, it really allows them to feel that they are in some way controlling change making and that then strengthens their trust in grassroots projects because they feel as if they have a significant contribution in whatever way possible in change making for their local areas. One of my research questions was actually asking if volunteers feel empowered as knowledge producers because I was looking at citizen science initiatives so knowledge was kind of like the key thing that I was looking into. And the answer to that question would be, 
it's not that volunteers feel particularly empowered by labels or roles like knowledge producer or gift giver, etc. They feel empowered actually from being able to contribute and fulfill their responsibilities as stewards by taking part in these projects that give them that freedom to carry out their responsibility. You know, they don't micromanage them. They don't control them as much. They're able to carry out these tasks in their own way. They get given um, a few sort of pointers and tips on how to carry them out, but they can carry them out how they want. So they have that ownership over their actions. So you can see that it is all about building and sustaining that hope in community that Yes, there is still so much to do for the land, for the modern human, but every effort is worth something and it will be reciprocated in some way by nature, by community and improvements will be seen. And the best way to sustain that hope is just to engage more and more people into the work. A big part of the responsibility of environmental caregiving, and that's what volunteers you know, um, mentioned trying to live up to, is to actually build that legacy of caring citizens, at least in the borough. And they do that through raising awareness. So they knock on doors to let people know what they're doing and encourage them to you know, join. They have the Facebook group that you know, show all these different events so that people can take part. Uh, word of mouth is a big way that people um, encourage people to join them and to raise awareness. So they may just be dealing with a pinpoint on the map, a grain in the desert, one volunteer very beautifully said. But if that tiny area in the UK, for example, or even in London, can make a difference, the hyperlocal scale, it is more than enough because it's about playing a part in your community and hoping that other communities follow suit. Essentially, it's about building that legacy of caring citizens, but it's also about developing that critical environmental consciousness within each individual. And then hopefully that, you know, sort of spreads out to other people. It's becoming conscious of your impact on the environment, potentially any negative impacts. For example, the sort of products you use in your garden, is it safe for hedgehogs? You know, opening up your garden to nearby areas will be beneficial to hedgehogs, but to other species too but also becoming conscious of your role in this expansive community, right? This ecosystem that's connected to other ecosystems. It's essentially becoming aware of our place in this complex web of ecological interdependency and how place-based caring relationships really serve for the functionality of that system. So then it becomes important to think about who's being enabled to carry out these responsibilities. I think that's a really important question to ask, especially when you're using the gift economy. It has been criticized, for example, for enforcing socioeconomic divisions. If you think about citizen science itself, it's very white, middle class dominated, the spaces of citizen science. So then you have to think about, okay, people are being able to take on this responsibility to take care of the environment, but Again, it's a very small section of people. It's usually white middle class people, uh, retired people who are able to do that. They feel capacitated to do that when in fact other underrepresented groups aren't necessarily feeling that or aren't necessarily even conscious that they can play such a big role in their community. It links to the concept of volunteerability, which is all about people's perceptions on how able they feel to volunteer. Do they feel that they're worthy enough to volunteer? Do they feel that they have enough availability or capacity to volunteer? And of course, this is determined by many sociopolitical factors, but two of the main ones that were mentioned as project leads as issues were, first of all, the demographic of volunteers being older retired people. And so, you know, when they feel that they can't really contribute as much to the cause, or even when they pass away, who's going to take that space? and they need younger people to participate. But the second, which is the most important, is the lack of ethnic diversity in the group. You know, they're very aware that it's mostly white, middle-class people, and that really restricts the opportunities to gift and to care and to learn about the environment and each other. As a group is expanding, and the project, the Hedgehog Project in particular is expanding, they are looking into tapping into underrepresented groups like disabled people and ethnic minorities and people of lower-income backgrounds. But again, because they're under-resourced, it is a bit difficult to do that. And they just want to increase the amount of volunteers taking part. But that is a really big thing. And I'm very happy that they are able to think about that despite being under-resourced. 
So awareness raising really includes, you know, seeing our place in the in the ecosystem as, you know, agentic beings, but also raising awareness about the fact that there are different sort of tensions and obstacles that certain underrepresented and underprivileged groups have to overcome to actually fulfill those responsibilities. So it's all about creating those spaces which value diverse knowledges, and that's exactly what the group is doing. You know, it's constantly letting volunteers know that every gift that they give is valued. And so now moving to the last theme, which was reciprocity, particularly balancing caregiver needs. So I actually didn't think about reciprocity in this way as much, or at least I didn't think it would be a main theme in the data, but it makes total sense. Because care relations themselves, they're context-bound, they're dynamic. Not one care relation is identical to another. And so that means that each care relation has specific needs that need to be fulfilled for both parties, right? And this depends on the situation and the needs at different times for each person who is in that care relation. And I guess that's where the tensions between reciprocity and volunteering come into it, which you talked about earlier. You think volunteering is altruistic in nature when in fact... The data and also literature show us that people really only commit to causes that they feel aligned to and they relate to and they're passionate about. We have a finite amount of resources within us, you know, and energy. So we have to really pick and choose what we commit to, who we commit to. And that will include some form of cost benefit analysis. That is normal and that is perfectly fine and that should be the case. But in this way, reciprocity also then includes caring for the needs and uh, desires and interests of volunteers at specific points in their life. Which is why some volunteers actually admitted to feeling a bit selfish when they're doing volunteering because they feel as if they're only giving very little and getting so much out of it. They're getting the experiences, the friendships, the knowledge, you know, feeling good about doing all of this work. Which I think is quite sad to see that, you know, we find it selfish for engaging in something that makes us feel good about yourself. And that's exactly what Project Lee's mentioned that, you know, they want to prioritize. They want volunteers to feel good after completing a task. They want them to feel good so that they can come back and do something again to make them feel good. They want them to feel deeply content about their work and good about themselves and proud that they volunteered for the cause that they are so passionate about. And I think the problem really lies in the sort of dichotomy of self and others in literature. You know, there's a sort of radical separation of the self and other, which is really overly simplistic because it implies that to serve for others, you need to sacrifice your own needs or vice versa. And we see that, of course, that's not the case. Blum, 1994, for example, argues that when we take care of relationships and we take care of community, we are directly taking care of a part of ourselves that is a part of that community, but also part of our own self. And it goes the other way too. To care for yourself is to care for that part of yourself, which is part of the community, if that makes sense. So having a sense of self, having a sense of identity, having a sense of what are your needs and what you need to fulfill as well as the part of yourself that is in that community, that is what is a core healing value and that is what is integral in healthy relationships and mutually caring relationships, you know, where everyone is cared for. If you're taking on the role as a caregiver, your needs need to be cared for too, so then you also become a cared for. So the roles, when they're able to be interchanged, that is where healthy caring is taking place. So a part of the responsibility of volunteers is to also steward their internal environment. You know, carers have to feel cared for, for them to care, for them to feel sort of revived and rejuvenated to continue on their caring responsibilities. When taking part in the study, talking to people through interviews and participant observation days, even just like observing how people are interacting with each other and the land, I found that volunteering, obviously we're talking about environmental volunteering here, but I'm sure it applies to other volunteering spaces too. Volunteers need to feel that they are being given the space to sort of flow between completing the task at hand, but also tending to their personal needs and interests. And in that liminal space really lies periods of self-discovery and reflection, which I got to experience, but also become more aware of. 
because it's something that I also engage in subconsciously or even unconsciously when I am in a natural space. So for example, in the Habitat Creation Day, because the task was so open and flexible, it allowed volunteers to actually move between helping their team to create the hibernacular, helping other teams as well, but also moments of sort of solitude and reflection throughout the day. So they would also sort of take photos of the landscape, take videos of the landscape, or they're taking photos of each other in between the tasks, sort of interacting with the more than human as well. As I mentioned, like the frogs and the wheelbarrows, taking them out, but also just asking people, you know, what is this plant or what is this insect or taking photos to ask later on, or even just exploring the meadow for themselves. I notice that it's these reflective silences in between the creation process and in between doing the tasks that really demonstrated how volunteers for themselves actually are able to engage in the balancing of their caregiving needs. They're able to balance their responsibilities to the cause with their responsibilities to take care of themselves. And that really just symbolized how important reciprocation is for the maintenance of volunteering networks and for the whole ecosystem. If you feel that balance, it encourages that healthy caregiving. But it also enables the agencies of human and more than human actors in the caregiving ecosystem. It enables them to take more control of their places and spaces and how these are managed, whilst also making sure that they don't feel exploited or burned out whilst they are taking on that role as caregivers. That was a lot. I had no clue it would go on for this long. (laughs) When I was, you know, sort of condensing the notes, it seemed like, oh yeah, it's quite condensed. And when you actually speak it out and you, you know, create the episode, you realize just how much there is. And there's actually way more, but I had to leave out certain parts so that it becomes more relevant for the episode. But to really just bring everything back together, we can see here that science Um, social sciences, you know, we talk about geography, for example, it is rapidly evolving as a multidisciplinary body of knowledge, which is beginning to value alternative epistemes and lived experiences. But there's still a lot of work to be done. One of the ways that the sciences are being democratized is through this ethics of care framework that we're particularly seeing in environmental justice. But unfortunately, the ethic of care isn't taken as seriously in decision making. It's mostly seen as like an ethic that can inform rather than control decision making processes. But there is a growing body of literature in you know, applying these care ethics to bottom up approaches like citizen science. But even then, there's this big research gap of considering the sort of emotional and embodied and personal sides to political agendas that are promoting active citizenship and environmental work. So I really hope that this thesis is able to address that research gap by using this feminist informed framework of the gift to provide insight into the richness of the interdependent and relational approaches that communities use for bottom-up approaches like citizen science. And I was able to use a volunteer group as a case study. Through the study, I was able to show and able to demonstrate how caring responsibilities and how the situated biographies of volunteers, their life stories are situated in place and reciprocal relationships really intermesh to form the very fabric of the caregiving ecosystem. In that way, it really just enables collective agency to tend to the needs of the community, of the land, of more than human nature, but also of yourself. And so for me, I was able to show that the gift framework was very helpful for volunteers to conceptualize their work as building and nurturing caring relationships with each other, with the land, uh, but also themselves. And through that, they were really able to acknowledge their value and place in the ecosystem as agentic beings, that whatever effort they put in, you know, whatever they do for the environment, it will benefit the environment in some way, it will benefit the community in some way, and it will be reciprocated. So I really hope that this relational work that I got to engage in in the summer, beautiful work, I'm so happy that I got to do it, can really help inform environmental policies that work to heal moral and political systems, you know, which have historically marginalized communities from decision making for their own environments. So 
from what I experience, I definitely will carry that into the work that I do in the future. And I just hope that this is able to be developed even more. And how I sort of concluded the thesis was recommending that this research extend to including underrepresented groups in community science. Because without these groups, environmental volunteering, if we see it as like a microcosm of care and reciprocity, it will remain incomplete and really unrepresentative of the diversity and connectedness that we are trying to preserve in nature. So I, yeah, that is it. That's exactly what I done over the summer. I really do hope that you all love this episode. You enjoyed it as much as I had fun writing it and even more fun connecting to such wonderful people. I'm very grateful for them. Without their enthusiasm and their work, I wouldn't be able to do this research at all. So a lot, a lot of love to them. And I'm very excited to see where this thesis and master's will take me because now I'm even more confused about my career choice. I realize just how broad it can be, how you know big my options can get. But I definitely know after doing this research that this relational and care-oriented lens to policymaking is something I'm going to further develop in my career path. I'm going to carry forward with me personally, professionally, emotionally, spiritually, in all levels. So thank you so much for listening. And I hope you really enjoyed engaging in this very special and quite different episode, looking at the gift economy and community-based citizen science. Thank you for listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast. As I mentioned before, I will not be posting my thesis on the website, but I will be adding all key references to literature on the website, mindfuloveverything.com, which helped inspire and inform my work. So do check them out. Subscribe to the podcast and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. And don't forget to give a rating on iTunes so that the show can reach other wonderful humans like you who also enjoy engaging in the conversations held in this space. 